In the 13th century, if you wanted to publish a book, the process was much different than it is today. The printing press was still 200 years away from being invented, and forget about online books. This was a time when every page was made of fine parchment crafted from animal skins, called vellum. Every word and illustration produced by hand. Multiple scribes and illustrators would contribute to the larger texts, and at times, it could take years for one book to come to completion. This is why there is a higher occurrence of religious books and texts considered sacred or educational in nature available from this time period. The process was long and could become expensive. There is one book in particular from the 13th century that is so spectacular in nature that it was once considered the eighth wonder of the world. This manuscript's creation is steeped in legend and mystery. This book is an astounding size and weight, coming in a little over 74 kilos or 165 pounds. It measures almost half a meter wide and about 23 centimeters thick. Needless to say, this is the largest surviving text from the 1200s. It is believed this manuscript was created in one night by a monk who was sentenced to immurement for allegedly committing unforgivable abominations in life. Legend says, that in a desperate attempt to save his life, he begged the abbot for mercy before his sentence was completed. The abbot offered the imprisoned monk a challenge, one that if completed, would award him his freedom. The monk was to create a book that included all the world's knowledge, but there was a catch. This book was to be created in one night. Smirking at his own amusement, the abbot supplied the monk with materials to begin this difficult challenge and left him to work the night away. As impossible as it may seem, the following morning, the monk presented the abbot with an impressive manuscript containing exactly what he asked for, leaving the abbot no choice but to spare his life. In today's episode, I'm going to share what I've learned about the Codex Gigas. Over the last 800 years, this massive book has intrigued those who have had a chance to view it in person. Superstitious warnings and supernatural tales are linked to the Codex Gigas. It is even said that one of the book's past owners had developed an unhealthy obsession with it. According to the legend, the monk who is credited for producing this massive text actually had help in its creation. It is said that when God didn't answer the monk's calls for help, he prayed for the assistance of another, and it was the devil who stepped forward to answer his call. Welcome to the Dark Side of Lightwork. I'm Wynne Thornley. In life, I'm a professionally practicing esoteric teacher and channel to the ethers, specializing in demystifying the dark arts and the paranormal. I'm also a supernatural nerd and do a lot of personal research into things that go bump in the night. My fascination with the unknown began when I was a kid due to having my own misunderstood psychic experiences. I believe my lifelong fascination with the strange and unusual has prepared me for the work I'm called to do now, taking me to places other lightworkers will not go. These experiences have taught me a lot about how many fallacies we are told and actually believe about the world of the unknown. Join me as I share with you what I've learned about the realms of the paranormal, mystics of the past, and places that might make you feel uneasy. I want to lift the veil a little bit and take the Hollywood out of the supernatural and metaphysics. And if you like what you hear, follow along by subscribing and please tell your friends.
For all you regular listeners, you might already be wondering what happened to my exploration on Frank Slide, Alberta. After working on that episode for a couple of weeks, I kept hitting roadblocks to moving forward with it. I decided to sit in meditation and explore where my block was sitting with getting this episode out. What came in loud and clear is the fact that this area of the Crow's Nest Pass is still on my active list for haunted field trips. The 2022 event was such a great success that my team and I have already set up dates for a new group of attendees for 2023. In order to keep the experience fresh and unswayed for the next group to visit this area with me, it was clear why I had my block. I dive deeply into my podcast topics and offer a lot of information, and this can color one's perspective, especially when on a haunted field trip. So, to avoid preconceived ideas and expectations of experience, I have decided to leave all active haunted field trip sites off my podcast episode list until they are moved to inactive. So, I made a pivot and dove into another topic I've been meaning to explore anyway. In haunted field trip news, I have a little bit to share. The exploration of the Banff Springs Hotel and the Old Banff Cemetery was incredible. There were eight attendees present, and all had unique messages passed along while tapping into the hotel. It always amazes me how subjective the psychic senses are in everyone, and the Banff Springs Hotel did not disappoint when offering a peek into its energy. It was fun to unpack the haunted history of the hotel and demystify the facts from the fiction. There are many stories told about this paranormal hotspot, and some of the most widely spread are actually tall tales. And this hotel in particular made it clear to me why I chose to do haunted field trips in the first place. To follow this exploration, we gathered at the Old Banff Cemetery, which was established in 1890. We talked a lot about the dead in cemeteries, and I got to dive into a lot of questions on energy work, the paranormal, and strange experiences. My heart chakra is full. What an amazing experience. I am so grateful to all those who showed up and connected for this event. In October, I will close down my haunted field trip season in Dry Island Buffalo Jump Provincial Park. This is more of a connection and healing event. The attendees and I will dive deeply into the wisdom of the land, call in our ancestors, and connect into the elements of our world. I look forward to giving thanks in a unique way this year for the Thanksgiving weekend. We will gather on October 9th, 2022, and the group is finalized and formed. One last event announcement that I would like to share with you is a special group workshop. In celebration of my favorite holiday, Halloween, I have rented the Cronquist House, which is one of the last homes in the city of Red Deer that survived the turn of the 20th century. It seemed appropriate to host a workshop exploring one of the most misunderstood divination devices in history, the Ouija board. In my workshop, Ouija and Pendulum Boards, I will share the history of these divination devices, the do's, don'ts, and misconceptions, as well as covering the basics of pendulum use. The group will also have the opportunity to have hands-on practice with the Ouija and Pendulum Boards that I'll supply. This workshop takes place on Sunday, October 30th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., And do you want to come out and play with us? Check my show notes for a link to my website for all the details and links to register. There are limited seats available. I had to cap the numbers at 24. And to date, four of those seats are already gone. So I expect this event to sell out. So get in while you still can. Okay, that is all the news about my other offerings I have for you today. Now, on to the show. Codex Gigas literally means the giant book, and giant it is. 
Like I mentioned before, it weighs in at an impressive 165 pounds and is just short of a meter tall, half a meter wide, and about 23 centimeters thick. Seeing pictures of this manuscript is the best way to put it into perspective how large this book really is. It takes a couple of people to handle it properly. Today, the Codex Gigas calls home to the National Library of Sweden in Stockholm. Incredibly beautiful, the Codex Gigas has wooden front and back covers that are overlaid in white leather. Elaborate metal decorations embellish all four corners on the front and back covers, each of which displays two griffins. From the decorative metal plates protrude knobs on which the codex rests when opened. There is also a star-like decorative metal plate attached to the center of the front cover and three that are attached to the back cover. Each of these also having knobs that support the book when opened and when at rest. On the back, there are holes that are thought to have been for a chain that connected the book to a table or desk at one time. The pages are also bound with wooden boards, and it is speculated that they might not be original to the Codex Gigas, which is normal considering the age of the book. The Codex Gigas is on display in a protective case, with the book opened to its most famous spread, pages 576 and 577. But what makes these pages so special? To be honest, most folks are actually drawn to and most curious about page 577. This page contains a full illumination of the rumored author of the Codex Gigas, the devil. This one page of vellum out of over 600 lends to what the Codex Gigas is also known as, which is the devil's Bible. But I will unpack more about this a little bit later in the episode. It's only natural to go back to the beginning and explore what we know about this book's inception and the author credited for writing this incredible work of art. Though the original date of creation has been lost to history, we can trace the Codex Gigas back to the year 1222 to the Benedict Monastery of the Podlazice in the Czech Republic. Since this monastery was destroyed during the Hussite Revolution, it was difficult to nail down when exactly this monastery came into possession of this manuscript. Even though the Codex Gigas was moved on from this monastery well before the Hussite Revolution, I did some research about it anyways for this episode. I didn't know much about this revolution, and I wanted to get a clearer historical picture of the area from which the Codex Gigas originated. The Hussite Revolution began in 1402 and was mostly centralized in the lands of the Bohemian Crown, today's Czech Republic. A priest and scholar named Jan Hus promoted the reformist ideals of John Wycliffe after he began to judge what he considered corruption of the church and the papacy. Similar to the Reformation of the Protestants, this questioning of Jan Hus led to a separation movement of the Hussites from the Holy Roman Empire. In the end, one group of the Hussites were granted permission to perform rites in their own vision, and the other group were persecuted. This is a complex topic, so I invite you to dive in deeper if you are more curious. And now I digress. When it comes to the Codex Gigas's history of creation, there is not much documentation available as stated, but there is a rich legend. Let's dive in, shall we? For the sake of dating, let's say the year is 1222. Though it is not known for certain who the scribe of the Codex Gigas was, there are clues that a monk calling himself Hermanus Inclusus is the person in question. There is a page of the Codex Gigas thought to be dedicated to him. This page includes what is believed to be a self-portrait and a signature. 
As the legend goes, Hermanus and Clusus got himself into a pickle. It was found out that he had broken his sacred vows to the monastery. I will explore the vows he broke a little bit later. Just know for now that they were said to be, quote, unforgivable abominations, unquote. Hermanus was sentenced to immurement, which is where the convicted are enclosed in a small space without an exit, a live entombment, if you will. This is usually considered a death sentence. Begging for his life while being walled up, the abbot took pity on the monk and decided to offer the prisoner a deal. If he could create a manuscript that contained the whole world's knowledge, he would be freed of his death sentence. The abbot even made sure to gather vellum, ink, and quills to get the monk started. Left to create this manuscript, the monk set to work right away. Hours into this project, it became blatantly clear this task was too lofty for the monk to complete on his own. He began praying to God in hopes of divine intervention and support. He prayed and prayed, declaring he would change his ways if he received the help he called out for. But his prayers were left unanswered. As midnight came and passed, the monk started to fall into deeper states of desperation. He didn't want to die, and feeling shunned by God, he began to seek the help of another. As the legend goes, Hermanus began to pray to the devil for assistance, and it didn't take long for the devil to show up. It was out of this despondency the monk traded his soul for a finished manuscript, and it is said the devil agreed to these terms. By morning, a book of immense size and weight was ready for the abbot's assessment. And with his assessment, Hermanus Inclusus was released to live out the remainder of his life as a free man. Pretty wild story, eh? The thing is, there are weird traits about the Codex Gigas that kind of validate this story. Let's explore what I found out about some documented facts of this manuscript. Some historians doubt that the Benedict Monastery of Podlazice would have been capable of financing the Codex Gigas. This monastery was very poor, and the cost of the vellum needed to create the Codex Gigas would have been astronomical at the time. The size of one of the vellum pages used in the Codex would have taken the skin of one donkey, or one and a half calves. This book is estimated to contain the skins of over 160 donkeys. That alone is a staggering number, and this is not even counting the cost of the ink included. The Codex Gigas used a range of colors for the inscriptions and illuminations, including black, red, blue, yellow, green, and gold. Let me expand on what illuminated manuscripts are for a moment here. For a book to be regarded as an illuminated book, this means that there are illustrations included throughout the pages. Sometimes illustrations would be simple borders, others would be intricate half to full page renditions. This was a real art. Often, there would be scribes who specialized in just illuminations and scribes who focused on lettering. In the case of the Codex Gigas, it appears there was one author who completed all the lettering and illuminations. That is the first unusual feature of the Codex Gigas. It has been proven by specialists who study historical manuscripts that the Codex Gigas was indeed created by one author and in a short period of time. The lettering is very precise and consistent in nature. Same with the illumination work. Many experts agree this is incredibly rare and difficult to wrap the mind around. 
It is estimated that it would take close to five years for someone to create a book of this size and complexity and only if they worked day and night without breaks. 20 to 30 years is the more realistic timeline. Over that many decades, one would expect to see a shift in the quality of the handwriting and illustrations. Age, illness, conditions like arthritis or failing eyesight would be the cause of the degrading quality. The incredible quality and consistency lends to the legend that this book was created in one night, and it is one characteristic that the experts just cannot explain. I want to break down the author name offered for you, Hermanus Inclusus. Hermanus translates to Herman, and Inclusus translates from Latin to English to punishment or voluntary isolation. Almost all the sources I came across agree it was Herman who was given credit to creating this book. Could it be that this book was created by a monk who did live his life in isolation? Whether voluntary or due to punishment is tough to validate, especially with the destruction of the original monastery the Codex Gigas was traced back to. There always seems to be a touch of truth to all legends, though, isn't there? So it calls to the imagination as to why there was such a rich tale connected to the Codex Gigas. Was this a story of myth created to add value and mystery to the book, allowing the poor monastery to flow greater riches into their possession with the sale of the book? Maybe. Was this a life work of a monk who voluntarily isolated himself in guilt of not being able to live up to his commitment to his faith in monastery? Again, we don't really know. One thing that is known is that it was most likely written by a Bohemian monk from the early 13th century this being indicated from one of the many books contained within the Codex Gigas. Let's explore what you'll actually find within the pages of the so-called Devil's Bible. The Codex Gigas is an eclectic collection of hymns and prayers, medical knowledge, magical formulas and incantations, as well as local historical records. There is a section that outlines a calendar with obituaries of people who died in chronological order from a specific timeline in around the Bohemian region. You will also find a list of the monks who served at the Podlazice Monastery in the 13th century, where the Codex Gigas was said to originally reside for some time. These sections, plus a section dedicated to the local history centering around the Bohemian region, validates the belief that the Codex Gigas was created by a monk living in or around the Podlazize Monastery. This book is referred to as the Devil's Bible, and it actually does include rites of exorcism and other incantations involving angelic and demonic forces. Yet there are many holy books included in this manuscript. I want to take a little bit of time here and break down all the separate books included in the Codex Gigas for you, all of which are beautifully and carefully handwritten in Latin in the style of Carolingian calligraphy if I pronounce that right. Forgive me if I didn't. And forgive me if I don't pronounce a lot of things right in this podcast episode. It was a lot of checking online about pronunciation with a lot of the names that are about to come up. And just another side note here, I'm not sure if the list of these books that I'm going to offer you is in order to the actual codex. I believe most are sandwiched in between the Vulgate Bible. The Vulgate Bible being known as the 4th century Latin translation of both the Old and New Testament. The next two books I want to explore are by Flavius Josephus. They are called Antiquities of the Jews and the War of the Jews. 
Flavius Josephus was a first-century Roman Jewish historian who was also a military leader. He is best known for his book called The War of the Jews, but is also responsible for curating the book Antiquities of the Jews. Antiquities of the Jews is a 20-volume account of the history of the Jewish people, Josephus's Gentile Patreons. In the first 10 volumes, Josephus follows the events of the Hebrew Bible beginning with the creation of Adam and Eve. The second 10 volumes continues the history of the Jewish people beyond the biblical text and up to the first Jewish-Roman War that began in the years 66 to 73 CE. The War of the Jews is also an impressive collection and is divided into seven books. The first two books open with a summary of the Jewish history from the capture of Jerusalem by Antiochus IV Epiphanes in the year 168 BC to the first stages of the first Jewish-Roman War. The next five books detail the unfolding of the war under Roman generals Vespasian and Titus to the death of the last Sicarii. It is described by Steve Mason, a Canadian historian whose focus is the Judea in the Greek-Roman period, as, quote, perhaps the most influential non-biblical text of Western history, unquote. The next book of interest is Isidore of Seville's encyclopedia titled Etymologia, Isidore of Seville was a Visigothic scholar and cleric. He is widely regarded, in the words of the 19th century historian Montalembert, as, quote, the last scholar of the ancient world, unquote. His end-of-life work, Entomologia, the Etymologies, is an encyclopedia that summarizes a wealth of knowledge from hundreds of classical sources. It basically contained whatever Isidore thought was worth keeping record of. Topics include our natural world, grammar, mathematics, geometry, music, astronomy, law, war, medicine, and so many areas of religious and philosophy, just to name a few. Three books alone were derived from the massive works of Pliny the Elders called Natural History, whom Isidore did give credit to. The next book to cover is The Chronicle of Bohemia by Cosmas of Prague. Cosmas of Prague was a priest, writer, and historian. Spending most of his life in Bohemia, he compiled a three-volume manuscript which includes information about the historical events in Czechland from ancient times to the first quarter of the 12th century. Though the chronicle is not limited to Czech national history, it also reveals the relationship between various European states during the 10th to 12th centuries. Next is a compilation of medical texts called Ars Medicinia, or The Art of Medicine, When I looked this up, it was tough to nail down one specific volume, curated text, or manuscript. It truly seems to be a collection of medical writings from as early as the 2nd century. There are two more books on medicine included in the Codex Gigas, these by Constantine the African. Constantine the African was a physician who lived in the 11th century. The first part of his life was spent in today's Tunisia region, and the remainder in Italy. He first arrived in Italy in the coastal town of Salerno, home to the school of medicine Salernitana. This is where his work initially attracted attention from the local Lombard and Norman rulers. The completion of his vast opus was mostly composed of translations to Latin from Arabic sources. These translations were used as textbooks from the Middle Ages to the 17th century. You can find these translations today in libraries across Europe, including Italy, Germany, France, Belgium, and England. The last big section to touch upon is the inclusion of the Hebrew, Greek, 
and Slavic alphabets. So this manuscript is a massive curation of some impressive books, and many readers do not consider this a book of evil. Quite the opposite, actually. One thing I failed to mention so far is that there are 10 pages that are missing, but I'll get to that in just a minute here. Among all these books, prayers, hymns, and medical information, there is the famous spread of pages 576 and 577. Many are focused on page 577 because it includes that full-page rendition of the devil. I will share this image with my Patreon community, but you can also find a link in my show notes to a website that offers a look at the whole Codex Gigas, page by page. This type of rendition, the devil, was almost unheard of in the 13th century. Many often wonder why the monk chose to include this in the Codex. Many others ponder if this is a self-portrait of the real author. I mean, legend does state that Hermanus called upon the devil to get the manuscript done by morning, and many more add superstition into the mix. I should mention that at the very center of the portrait of the devil, you will find a darkened discoloration. This discoloration seems isolated to this page. It's been determined to not be mold, and it does not bleed through to the other side. Is this some kind of essence of the devil soaked into this page, or something else altogether? I will unpack this a little bit later in the episode. Let's take a moment to consider the opposite page of this famous spread. It is a full-page rendition of what is thought to be the City of Heaven. Both images of the City of Heaven and the devil are framed by massive pillars. The devil stands alone, and the halls of the City of the Heavens are empty. Some historians believe the spread is to allow the reader to contemplate good and evil, Will their choices in life lead to one or the other? In the pages leading up to the City of Heaven, the monk leaves what are thought to be his confessions, the sins he was convicted of in life. These so-called confessions are written in double the size of the rest of the manuscript and includes all the sinful hits. He apparently admits to pride, envy, lust, gluttony, bestiality, and fornication. But are these the sins of the monk himself? or that of humanity? This is up for debate. To close the list of sins, the monk include prayers of forgiveness and mercy. The Codex Gigas' creation comes with so many questions. Did this monk really complete this massive book alone, and overnight? Indeed, this book had all the world's knowledge of the time, compiled into one volume, but why make it so massive that it takes at least two people to handle it, It doesn't make it very convenient to read through, you know what I mean? And what happened to those missing pages? And did this book really cause its owners to go mad or have supernatural events follow them? I will explore some historical facts to help answer these questions. Let's begin with the journey of the Codex Gigas. It did quite a tour around the Czech Republic. We do know it is recorded as being sold from the Podlazice Monastery in Bohemia to the Cistercian monks of the Sedlik Monastery in around the year 1222, where it remained for 70 years. The Benedict Monastery of Brevnov reclaimed the Codex Gigas around the end of the 13th century. It is then recorded as being kept in the library of a monastery in Brumov from 1477 to 1593. This was until it was taken to Prague in 1594 to form a part of the collections of the Emperor Rudolf II, 
And this is where things get interesting. Emperor Rudolph II's legacy has traditionally been viewed in three ways. He was an ineffectual ruler whose mistakes led directly to the Thirty Years' War. He was a great and influential patron of the Northern Mannerist art. And he was an intellectual devotee of occult arts and learning, which helped seed what would be called the Scientific Revolution. It was this last view that pulls Emperor Rudolph II into the Codex Gigas timeline. Rudolph was supposed to borrow this manuscript, but the sources I came across said he pretty much stole the manuscript, for one, by not returning it to the monastery of Brumov, and for two, he didn't offer an exchange for it either. What I found in researching this portion of the episode is that Rudolph became obsessed with the Codex Gigas. This obsession is often attributed to the Emperor's eventual poor choices that led into the Thirty Year War. I covered a little bit about the Thirty Year War in my exploration of the Bamberg Witch Trials. Here's some coal notes. This was a time of Reformation, where the Protestants were breaking away from the Holy Roman Empire, causing much bloodshed in Europe, including amping up the witch hunts of the time. Rudolf was aligned with the Holy Roman Empire. This proved not to be in Rudolf's favor by the end of the Thirty Years' War. By the end, much of his power was taken over by his brother and other family members. In the year 1648, the arrival of the Swedish army put an end to the war. When the army invaded Rudolf's castle, they confiscated his entire book collection as war booty, including the Codex Gigas. Some say by Rudolf having possession and obsession of this book is what led to his downfall. From this point in time, the manuscript was kept at the Swedish Royal Library in Stockholm, located in the Trey Kronor Royal Castle. This is where the next case of bad luck would be documented that involved the Codex Gigas. On Friday, 7th of May in 1697, a fire broke out at the Trey Kronor Royal Castle, which destroyed much of the Royal Library. In order to save some of the most sacred and highly regarded books, those on site began tossing books from a second-story window. This included the Codex Gigas. It is believed this was the event that led to the 10 missing pages, though no one knows for sure sure. There is much speculation as to what could be included in the 10 missing pages of the Codex Gigas. Did they include more exploration into the dark arts? Could it be the answers to the greatest mysteries of life and death? Again, no one really knows for sure. Though there are theories that these pages might have contained the rules of the Benedict Monastery in Bohemia. There are some scholars that say that these pages didn't just fall out of the book. They say that there is evidence that these ten missing pages were ripped out deliberately. Along with the missing pages, the fire of the Trey Kronor Royal Castle also offers another story of misfortune associated with the Codex Gigas, this time one leading to major injury. According to the vicar Johann Eriksson, when the Codex Gigas was thrown out of the window to save it from the fire, it landed on and injured a bystander. Can you imagine 165 pounds of vellum and wood landing on you? Whether this story is based on fact or fiction has been debated. After all, Johann Eriksson wrote about this mishap 50 years after the fire, so it was pretty challenging to validate anything from this story. The last myth I will share with you about the Codex Gigas involves a story shared to a publication translated from Swedish to English named Hilarious Antidotes, this article being published in the year 1858. 
It tells the story of a caretaker of the Swedish National Library and his terrifying experience involving the Codex Gigas. As the story goes, one night, this caretaker found himself locked in the library main hall after falling asleep on the job. Upon waking, he shares how he thought he saw books climbing down from their shelves. The books began to float around the room in what appeared to be a whirling dance. They all began to surround the Devil's Bible from all directions, and this is when the giant book lifted and joined in on the dance itself. The next morning, library staff found the frightened caretaker trembling under a table. As the story goes, the caretaker was forever affected by this event. He was set to fall into a feeble-minded state from that day on, and had to be admitted to a sanatorium for the remainder of his life. This story was repeated on only a few of the sources I came across. It was challenging to validate any truth behind it, but it sure does give added curiosity to the myth and tales connected to the Devil's Bible. Back in 1858, this could have been clever marketing for the Swedish National Library, but it is much more fun to think of it as a legit tale of the supernatural, isn't it? To close down this episode, I'm going to cover where the Codex can be found today and my thoughts on this impressive medieval manuscript. In September 2007, after 359 years, the Codex Gigas returned to Prague on loan to the Czech National Library from Sweden. This was until January 2008. From there, it was returned to the National Library of Sweden where it is on public display today. The Codex Gigas is left open on the most famous spread, the one with the City of Heaven and the Portrait of the Devil. There has been an incredible amount of discoloration on both of these pages, this being due to the exposure to light and air. Experts believe this is the reason for the mysterious darkened spot in the middle of the Devil's Portrait. Simple and explainable. However, many still believe that the discoloration of these two pages are due to the essence of the Prince of Darkness being soaked into the pages. But scientifically, vellum and ink from an 800-year-old book are quite sensitive to lighting today and exposure to air. Medieval text experts agree that the book being left open to this spread has definitely caused it to age much faster than the rest of the over 600 pages. To commemorate the accepted site of its creation, the Town Museum of Krast, where the Podlazice Monastery was located, is marked by a scale model of the Codex Gigas. So what do my spider senses tell me all about this medieval masterpiece? Do I think the devil stepped in, bought a soul, and created the largest manuscript to come out of the 13th century? And overnight, no less? I don't think so. Though, it is strange that all the experts agree that this book was created by one person and over a short period of time. Remember, it is estimated it would take five years working day and night to have completed a book of this size with this much knowledge and illuminations the Codex Gigas contains. More realistically, it would have taken between 25 and 30 years. It is hard to explain why the lettering and illuminations maintain immaculate consistency. So... I've been thinking and thinking about it. As a hobby artist myself, my mind goes into the realm of size matters. In my experience, when working with a small space, my hands become more cramped and tired when trying to control my pencil, pen, or brush to maintain fine, small creations. 
but when I have a large canvas or a pad of paper to create upon, I find I can work for much longer periods before I have to rest. I wonder if the size does matter in this case. What seems to ring as truth in my mind, body, and soul about the Codex Gigas is that the monk involved in its creation did indeed become isolated. Whether through punishment handed out by his monastery or on his own accord, I'm not sure. Kind of feels like his own accord if I really dive into the energy. With his lengthy confession of some pretty savage sins and calls for forgiveness, I believe the Codex Gigas was his life's work towards redemption. Clever marketing and myths always make for big sales, and I wonder if the Padlazise Monastery wrapped a little mystery into their sale. You would think from the size of the manuscript and the fact that no other book like this from the 13th century contained anything like the full-page rendition of the devil, that this would be enough to mark up the value. But we are talking about a time of our collective history where superstition was alive and well. Though we will most likely never know the true story around the Codex Gigas's creation, what a blessing it was created in the first place. Some of the books contained in the Codex Gigas would not have survived into the 21st century without it. And I think that is one way that Hermanus Inclusus would have found eventual redemption for his missteps in life. Thank you so much for popping by and spending time with me today. I really appreciate you being here. I'm excited to see an increase in loyal listeners, and I would love to hear your feedback. I invite you to leave a message at my Anchor FM page letting me know how you like this episode or others. You can also share your personal experience with a show topic or even share a show idea. I listen to each message and may include your idea in a future episode. Since I'm an independent podcast host and producer, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, a follow on Spotify, or a review on where you are listening to me right now would really help others find my show. And a quick share of this or other episodes is absolutely appreciated. Outside of my podcast platforms, you can find me on social media by searching for The Dark Side of Light Work with Wynne Thornley. If you like bonus content, I invite you to check out my exclusive Patreon community. Your contribution helps with the growth and expansion of The Dark Side of Light Work. I have lots of exclusive content available for my loyal Patreons that isn't available anywhere else. Behind-the-scenes research content, meditation, bonus episodes, and videos. Any support is welcome, and I feel grateful for all the support I have already received. Thank you so much. I'm also expanding the conversation of my other passion of working with the empathic, psychic, intuitive, and mediumship community over on the Wisdom app. There, you can find me going live throughout the month. Wisdom is a blend of live radio and podcasting as all live conversation becomes archived so you can listen in later. Wisdom also offers the option to chat live with me, so I invite you, be my guest, and join the conversation. In my next episode, I'll be sharing what I've learned about the Skoll Experiment. The Skoll Experiment is widely regarded as the most important scientific investigation of evidence for life after death in all of history. Taking place in multiple countries and over a period of five years, there was profound evidence said to be collected that give proof of communication from the beyond. Thank you once again for listening until the end. I look forward to dropping the next episode soon. So until then... Take good care.